prepare ourselves to have the right kind of attitude when the Passover does come. Uh, you might remember last week we talked considerably about Revelation 3.17 there and how our assessment of ourselves is quite different than that of Christ's assessment and how he spewed the whole church out. Uh, a lot of people in the church want to blame it on the devil. Uh, but Christ said, I am the one who vomited you out. Satan didn't dislike us. Satan was fairly happy with us. It was Christ and our Father in heaven who was unhappy. We need to get that distinction. When we're lukewarm, when we're self-righteous, uh, Satan has no problem with that. Why would he want to mess with us? <laughs> It's when we're that way that God begins to get upset. And I spend quite a little, quite a little time uh, on Matthew 5, verse 1, or 2, anyway, the first beatitude, at least, about poor in spirit and how we need to recognize our spiritual poverty, and that that is one of the main keys to us becoming more loving, more unified, uh, less critical and backbiting and all of those things uh, because we recognize our own poverty. And if we recognize our own poverty, how are we going to criticize someone else who also is in poverty? Now, how does the poor call the poor poor? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's only when we feel that we are a bit rich in, gr in goods, at least a little bit better than the one who we are aiming our sights at, that we can feel free to criticize others and to judge them, condemn them, find fault with them, and so on. And a lot of that will cease if we come in our own hearts to recognize our spiritual poverty before God. So it is not a comparison of ourselves among ourselves. It is our comparison with God that helps us comprehend and understand how much we as individuals need to learn, change, and grow. And if we're focused on our own spiritual poverty compared to the Father and the Son, then we don't have time to sit around and badmouth others because we are so busy trying to get ourselves out of the poverty that we have. So, I, want to, I wanted to spend some time discussing the deplorable condition of the temple so we can begin to understand what God must do in order to rebuild, to redirect, to redo that which was not working so well. And I thought of Lamentations and feel that I want to spend one more week on this condition that we find ourselves in and perhaps recognize a little more about it. If you go to the book of Lamentations, Lamentation of Jeremiah, right after the book of Jeremiah, uh, I covered this, or I've been through it at least a couple of times, since 96, and it's on tape and our, on our website, but uh, as things have progressed, uh, we, we need to renew, review some things, remind ourselves at times, 
and perhaps look at it from a little different view, a little different angle, and maybe understand it better. So the Bible is finite. There's only so much there, only so many books. And uh, God intended us to repeat uh, these things over and over again to remind us, just as the holy days come every year, and we're supposed to give meat in due season, and every year, each holy day that comes, we need to be reminded of what it is, what it means, how it affects our lives, and review the plan of God. Every year he wants that done. So God realizes we have faulty memories. He realizes we can get onto lack of focus and various things that can keep us or cause us to forget or drop his words to the ground. So we need to have a constant review going on to remind ourselves. Do you know how quick it is when you want to do this or do that or think this to forget this whole book? In a moment of frustration or anger or selfishness or whatever, uh, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, the things that drive human nature, it's so easy to completely forget God and forget the Bible, at least momentarily. And maybe you'll wake up a minute or two or an hour or a week later and say, oh, how did I do that? Real easy. Human nature is just always there. It's always waiting to bite us. <clears throat> I mentioned tomorrow I was going to address Lamentations today, and she says uh, that she had remembered that I did a sermon on Lamentations in Montana back in, that had to have been between 1978 and 1983. And uh, I said, well, I don't remember any detail of that, or even for that matter, specifically going through it. But I know good and well that if I did then, and she said I did, so I'm sure I did, uh, that I would have applied this essentially to the national, the nations of Israel. Not Israel in the Middle East, but all the tribes of Israel as we understand. They're scattered throughout Western Europe and here and, and some places around the world. But I would have applied it, just as I did in those years, to, to Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Lamentations, the Minor Prophets, just to the nations, the nations of Israel. And then God began to help me understand that these prophecies are, first of all, to the church. We've been over that many, many times, and I've quoted Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 till uh, it's certainly a memory verse at this point, where it does address the church along with Zion and Jerusalem as uh, the New Testament organism that we know of as the church today. So, that is, those words, Zion and Jerusalem and the church, are coded together. And any time you read about Zion and Jerusalem in the prophecies, they will almost invariably... I won't say everyone, maybe there are a few that are specifically national, but almost invariably, I think I can say that, uh, it will refer first to the church, then to the nations. Two applications, two different prophecies, two different fulfillments. Now let's look at the Lamentations of Jeremiah today in the light of what we studied last week. 
uh, particularly in Revelation 3.17, about how we, as a church, as a people, uh, are just the opposite. Instead of righteous, we are self-righteous. The opposite of what God wanted us to be. Thinking we're okay when we're not. And we have to take that personally, because God didn't write it to everybody but you. He didn't write it to everybody but me. He wrote it to each of us. His word is a very personal word. And we need to take all his words very, very personally. Because that's the way he intended them. Now, he may address the church overall, but we're part of the church. If we're members in particular and placed in the body as he saw fit to place us, then when he addresses spiritual Israel or the church, he means you, he means me as individuals. He doesn't mean those Philadelphia, I mean those Laodiceans, he means you and he means me. If we can take that to heart, then we can perhaps learn. If we, if we continue to blame it on somebody else, we'll never learn. So let's take it from that standpoint as we go into Jeremiah, and we'll, I mean into the Lamentations of, we will see that this is mostly fulfilled prophecy. When I spoke about it in Montana, or in times past before that, for that matter, it was essentially all prophetic. But now the first fulfillment of this book is almost done. I won't say entirely done, because what he describes here is continuing apace, but for the most part, it's almost finished. So, rather than something we see ahead, we see this as something that has just occurred, is still occurring, and will occur for a short time into the future. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? Jerusalem, the city, the church, spiritual Israel, the church is what it's speaking of. You might substitute Pasadena there. How does the church city sit empty when it was full of people? How has she become as a widow? As if the father's not there, the husband isn't there, Christ. She is on her own, fending for herself. She that was great among the nations, or the peoples, and princess among the provinces, how is she become tributary? At one time, Christ, her husband-to-be, was holding her up, was causing her to go around the world uh, in preaching the gospel, in calling a lot of people to understand God's ways, and then that ceased, stopped, just like Zechariah says it would, like a talon of lead thrown into her mouth to shut her up. <coughs> she weeps sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Torn down. Torn apart. Splintered. Split. Scattered. Oh, almost invisible today. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction, and because of great servitude, she dwells among the heathen. Where did a majority or a lot of the church of God go? Right back into Protestantism, 
right back into heathenism. And again, as Zechariah 5 says, she was set on her base in Babylon. Two unclean birds took her there and set her into Babylon, right among the heathen where she had been. And she finds no rest. All the persecutors overtook her between the straits. Uh, wherever they could capture, wherever they could uh, catch her, they did. Now, I'm not saying Satan didn't have a hand in this. He, I'm sure he did. But it was at the behest of God. That we need to grasp and understand. Just as with Job. It wasn't Satan who went to God and said, I want to do something to Job. God approached Satan and said, Have you noticed my servant Job? Oh yeah, I've noticed him. He obeys. He didn't like that. God says, Well, sick him. Do anything but kill him. Oh, okay. Jumped right on it. And Satan and his demons and the world jumped on the church in the same way. So, But it was God who was behind it. That we need to grasp. If you blame it on the devil, then you have no responsibility, essentially. If you understand that God sicked him on us and sicked the world on us, then you have to ask another question. Why, God, did you do that? And what should I do about it? If you were angry at me, at us, and you sick the devil on us, then there must have been something drastically wrong that you needed to have addressed. And it is only if we accept that personally that we will do anything about it. Because the majority will do nothing. They use the term public opinion a lot of times. Well, public opinion is this, or public opinion is that. We need to realize there is no such thing as public opinion. Opinions are personal. And when we say public opinion of the church, that's wrong. Every one of us has our opinions. So it has to be taken personally. <clears throat> I find no rest. You find no rest. Not just the church as a whole. What do people say? I'm confused. I'm frustrated. I don't know where to go. I'm attending here, but I'm not being fed. I'm starving to death, wherever they might be. I'm not getting the spiritual food that I need to spur me to grow, to jog me out of my rut, or whatever the circumstance may be to get me moving, to help me see what I need to do. He commanded the whole church to repent, did he not? And to overcome? All seven were told to overcome. Overcome what? What do you mean? If there's nothing wrong with me, what do I need to overcome? So there's no rest. Verse 4, The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. No real leadership, no real direction, continuing to splinter, divide, fall apart, 
and it is a certainly mournful situation. Attendance at all the feast sites around the world have gone way, way down in the last quarter century. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the eternal has, affli- the eternal has afflicted her. Not the devil, the eternal. For the multitude of her transgressions, it is our sins that have brought this division and scattering upon us. We still have the truth. We still have been called of God, but we were not pleasing in his sight, and therefore this has happened to us. It doesn't mean we're not God's people. It just means we need an attitude adjustment. We need to change some things. And we need to understand what, when, why, where, and how about that. Uh, Verse 6, And from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like deer that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. No power to do anything. Can't accomplish much. Uh, The beauty is gone. Remember all the beautiful campus and all the things we had, three of them? Now it's all gone. I was in Pasadena not too long ago and drove by and couldn't even get on the campus. They had armed guards down by the the, uh, auditorium. They have high schools going on in some of the buildings, and you can't go on the high school grounds, and so on and so forth. And they were tearing down, uh, I saw cranes, wrecking balls, tearing down the Loma Armstrong uh, uh, Academic Center, they called it. They were in the process of doing that. So the beauty is gone. The unity is gone. The beauty of the unity. Verse 7, Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction of her memories, of her miseries, all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy. So we can think back, those of us who were there back then, about how we were doing fine, growing, spreading, everything seemed good, and then we fell into the hand of the enemy. And we found out the enemy was us. <clears throat> the leadership that took over was an enemy that took us back to Babylon if we were allowed, if we went. And a lot of us lapsed back into the habits and the ways of this world more than we perhaps would like to admit. Let's see. Verse 8, Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed, taken away, gone. All that honored her despise her. Because they have seen her nakedness. Just stripped bare of all that we had and thought we were. And everybody sees that the king has no clothes now. They see that the church is not adorned or dressed in the way that we thought we were. We thought we had holy, righteous garments. And suddenly we find the holiness of those garments is not there. Stripped away, gone. She sighs and turns backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembers not her last end, consorting with the devil and with society and the culture around us. Uh, The church has done that. We still do that. God commanded us to come away from the midst of Babylon out here. 
in Micah 4 and other places, Zephaniah 2. And so we have done. And yet we are still touched a great deal by the culture and the ways of this world, its foods, its entertainment, uh, so many, many things. The way of thinking. She has no comforter. Holy Spirit, pretty much unfunctional within the church today. Now everybody thinks, well, I'm, I have the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe so. But have we quenched it to the point that it is not as active and as able and as powerful and as comforting as it ought to be? If we had oil in our lamps, weren't as close to God as we were supposed to be, and were filled with His Spirit as opposed to just sort of having it. That which is not used is worthless. So just having been given God's Spirit at baptism and the laying on of hands is not enough. If it's dormant, what good does it do? If it isn't outgoing, helpful, giving, serving, loving, what good is it? It has to flow. If it doesn't flow and sits, it is of no use. And no comfort. And we are in a situation with the church broken, a teddy bear taken away, a banky removed, and we've been told to take our thumb out of our mouth and grow up. Verse 10, the adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. Buildings gone, jet airplane gone, uh, local churches gone, basically everything removed. For she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom you did command that they should not enter into your congregation. The unclean, the unbelieving, should not be in the congregation. Those who are not in a right attitude, building unity and love, instead building other attitudes, shouldn't be around. But Raider, Tkach, various other ones wormed their way in and entered the sanctuary and defiled it and ultimately destroyed it. Basically gone now. All the people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for food to relieve the soul. Spiritual famine. See, O Eternal, and consider, for I am become vile. Now there's a statement for us. Jeremiah looked upon himself as he wrote this and said, I am vile. Not everybody else is vile but me, but I am. Isn't that what Job came to see? Oh, now I get it. I'm nothing, you're everything. God says, thou worm Jacob. Well, if the whole tribe of Jacob is a worm, what does that make you and me? In comparison to God, every one of us is utterly vile. Self-centered, self-righteous, <clears throat> vain, egocentric, and so on to whatever degree. It, it affects us all. <clears throat> Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow, which is done to me, wherewith the Eternal has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Again, reiterating, it was God that did this to us. 
And Jeremiah took it personally as a prophecy for us to take it personally. Verse 13, from above, he sent fire into my bones, and it prevails against them. Not only did the fire hit my bones, it's having its way with them. <clears throat> he, he has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come upon my neck. He has made my strength to fail. The Eternal has delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise up. God took away all of our security. He left us in famine, pestilence, and disease, spiritually speaking, because that's the condition we were in. <clears throat> and we no longer have the comfort and the security in the womb of the church that we once had. All scattered, all pulled apart, fighting among ourselves, talking each other down. On and on it goes when you look at the deplorable condition of the church today. <clears throat> Verse 15, The Eternal has trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. The ministry, God, has knocked flat so that they are ineffectual now. There are those groups out there trying to do a worldwide work and they, they keep bragging about all the things they're doing and how they're growing and how they're getting this many booklets and all that stuff out. It's having no effect. Almost no effect. People are still in this group, out the back door and into the next one, out the back door and into the next one. Milling around, trying to find something that escapes them. Can't be found. God has removed it, brethren. And he's removed it because of us. He caused our strength to fail. And the mighty men to fail. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. So, the young ones can't find it either. They can't lead. They can't go. They can't guide. They have trouble finding their own way. They're confused too. The Eternal is trodden a virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a wine press. When you stomp grapes, or put them to a wine press, it just tears them apart. The juice and the seeds and the peel all separate. <laughs> it just becomes goo in that sense. And that's what the church has become. Verse 16, For these things I weep, my eye, my eye runs down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. God just withdrew. He tells us in other places that he has turned his face from us. We've read quite a few of those over the years. He's turned his face away. Now, he doesn't have his face turned toward the world. It's turned against them as well, and he's about to dump his anger on the world around us. Things are getting pretty tight in this old world now, waiting for the flashpoint of World War III and the New World Order being imposed. It isn't far away. But at the same time, not only has God turned his face against a world that he can't stand to look at, he's turned it against a church that he can't stand to look at. Are physical Israelites still his people? Are all the Gentiles still his children to be converted someday? Yes, they are. 
But in the meantime, he can't stand to look at them, and he can't stand to look at us. We'll see that it even affects our prayers as we go on. Uh, the eternal, uh, verse 17, Zion spreads forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The eternal is commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a minstrel's woman among them. Put out a camp, in other words. God has separated us out in the way until we become clean. He uses that analogy. Verse 18, the eternal is righteous. Ah, God is righteous. We tend to be self-righteous, building ourselves up in our own minds. You see, we can recognize that we might have the works of the flesh. We might see that. And then we try to be different. We try to show the fruit of God's Spirit. But all too often, it's just a human effort to truly have the fruit of God's Spirit you have to be filled with that Spirit. And you don't get filled with that Spirit without going to God on a very regular basis and imploring Him and beseeching it and being very, very careful to follow His commandments and all His instructions. And when you put forth that kind of effort, He will begin to more and more help you but he does not help those who do not help themselves. We have a society today that has caused us to be more and more dependent upon the government. More and more types of government subsidy, more and more types of government welfare and handouts, and on and on it goes, so that we become dependent on them. And we are learning as a people... Why should I work when I will be fed anyway? Why should I put forth effort if I can get as much on the unemployment or whatever? Or when it runs out, they're going to feed me anyway. So we become dependent in that sense, and then we quit doing for ourselves. Now, God doesn't work that way. He does not run a welfare department at all. He expects us spiritually speaking now, to take care of ourselves, to put forth the effort, to put forth the work, the time, in our Bibles and on our knees and in meditation and fasting, to draw near to Him. And that's the way He states it. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. He doesn't say, you can wait in my welfare line and everything's going to be fine. That's not the way God works. Sorry. He says, you put forth the effort. Then I will respond. You see, God is the center of the universe. We revolve around Him. He does not revolve around us. That is a huge mistake we have in our culture that we, to a great degree, have bought into.
so that even in our family life, we are not in the center of the universe. Instead, the children are, and we revolve around them. Absolutely upside down and backward. You are to be, as parents, the primary ones in the family. The leaders, the head, the guide, the teachers. And the children's lives should revolve around you. We're totally backward in this country. And I know that might strike people as, oh, well, oh, wait a minute, that's all about the children. No, it's not all about the children. The parent is the adult. Your children are not your buddies, they're your children. And you need to treat them as that. God does not revolve around us. We revolve around Him. We approach Him, and He will hear us. If we don't approach Him, we get ignored. He won't do for us unless we do the approaching. Now, indeed, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. I understand that. He has to open the mind before you can even begin to truly approach him. But still, see, he's the center. And he says, I'll approach that one, or I'll approach that one. I will call them, because I might can use them now, the others can wait. But then once that mind is opened, we have to seek him. I can I could make three sermons on scriptures that show that alone. How we are to seek God and go to God and approach God. It's not a welfare situation. The eternal is the righteous one, verse 18. For I have rebelled against his commandment. He doesn't have the problem. We have the problem. And we're not going to solve the problem, nor is God going to begin to act on what we want. Prayer should be, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, and so often that's how we pray. This is my will, Father, please do it. No. We're to look in here and find out what his will is and then get in line with it is the way it is supposed to be. Hear, I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Sounds like Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and others, where the pastors have left the flock and are seeking to feed themselves. And speaking essentially there, it can be physical, but essentially on a spiritual level as well, both. They seek their physical good and forget the spiritual needs of the people. You can't do that. I read a quote just recently, it's talked about how when there is compromise in religion, it's no religion. When you compromise and soft pedal 
or don't say it like it is, then nothing happens. It has to be put out there powerfully, bluntly, strongly, personally, if we have any hope of repairing the breach between us and God. You can't soft-pedal it to keep people coming. You have to lay it out there, and the ones who really want to find God will pick up on it, and others will depart, because they don't want to hear it. Can't stand the heat, so they get out of the kitchen. Now, we all cooks that are in this, no matter how hot the kitchen gets, it's gotten pretty hot. Now we need to repent so the heat will be relieved. Otherwise, we're going to go into the great physical depression or, or uh, tribulation that is about to come upon our nation. And if we go into that, I think you can't take the heat now. Wait till that's turned on. Verse 20, Behold, O Eternal, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaves, at home there is as death. It doesn't matter where you look in the world. You look at the church, the sword has cut it asunder. Here, there, everywhere. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. The whole Protestant world is glad to see Worldwide Church of God go down. All that commandment keeping, the Sabbath, the holy days, all that stuff. They laugh at our confusion. But God is the one that's done it, it says. God did it to us. You know, I'm not here to try to be popular. I have come to a realization a long, long time ago that if I preach plainly and strongly the things that God says, most people will not like it. They didn't like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. They didn't like any of the minor prophets. They didn't like John the Baptist. They didn't like Christ. They didn't like Paul, Peter, James, and John. That's just the way people are. But God says, lay it out there. Don't be a reed shaken in the wind. Put it out the way it really is. And if they tar and feather you or stone you or cut you in half, throw you in the outhouse hole, whatever they do, that's what comes with the territory. So I have an obligation before God to tell you, to tell me, and whoever wants to get on the website and read it, the way things really are. You see, there's a reason for our frustration. We don't have to be confused about that. Christ laid it out for us in Revelation 3.17. Jeremiah is laying it out for us here. So we can understand why. Then we have to figure out what are we going to do to fix this. What will it take to turn God's head from not looking at us to back to us is the apple of his eye. Something he can stand to look at. Does it seem sometimes that God hardly answers our prayers, that he hardly hears us? That the things we feel we need aren't answered, we don't get? 
And then we say, what's wrong with God? Why doesn't he heal? Why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? It isn't his problem. Either your faith did it or your faith didn't do it. And our level of faith and trust in him was so low that he simply turned his face away. You have done it. You will bring the day that you have called, and they shall be like to me. Let all their wickedness come before you, verse 22, and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Chapter 2. How has the Eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? God is the one who's covered us with this cloud. Isaiah 44, I think it is, talks about how he'll remove our sins as a cloud. They'll just disappear like a cloud goes away. But in the meantime, there's a cloud over us. And cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel, and remember not his footstool in the day of his anger. Footstool is something you rest your feet on and get relief. But God has stomped us. He stomped us. He's used the footstool for something else. Verse 2, The Eternal has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and has not pitied. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah, the church. He has brought them down to the ground. He has polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. The whole church, the leadership, the people in it, he has cut off in his fierce anger all the, all the horn of Israel. Why does he tell the two witnesses even in Revelation 11? Leave out the court of the Gentiles. Don't, don't even be concerned with the world at the beginning of your job. Measure the altar and them that worship therein, the ministry and the people that are there. He says that's where the first problem lies. It isn't the world that we need to preach the gospel to. Most groups are trying to do it, but that isn't what any of us need to be doing right now. We need to be getting ourselves straightened out and let the church know what's wrong with it and why we're in this condition. If we don't get that fixed, what good does it do to go preach to the world? That will come in its time. But the church is the critical issue right now, and it is what has been cut off before even the nations of Israel and the world have been cut off. See, God is dealing first with us. He's got to get us squared away before he even starts on the world. That's why Herbert Armstrong did a calling work. He didn't preach the gospel around the world as a witness and then the end come. Didn't do that. It is yet to be done by two witnesses. Not just one. He called many people. God is now choosing. <coughs> Whether you and I are chosen is being weighed in the balance. Pick it up in verse 4. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. All of us who showed up at Sabbath service in our 
Sabbath attire and put on our face of righteousness wasn't God's righteousness. It was essentially self-righteousness. He makes that very clear there in Revelation 3. Verse 5, the eternal was as an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Well, we got it, don't we? I don't, I wanted to get through this whole book today. I don't want to spend too much time elucidating on it, but, uh, isn't it pretty obvious when you look at all these scriptures? what has happened to us, and God is saying over and over and over that He's the one that did it. Dozens of times in this one chapter alone. Verse 6, And He has violently taken away His tabernacle as if it were of a garden. Now, I entitled this series, How Would God Build a Temple? We haven't even gotten past the point yet of how if it's built wrong, what He will do to it and what needs to be done to begin to start fixing it. We'll get there, but let's understand what's happened to his tabernacle or his temple today and realize that something has to be done differently. Calling it the Philadelphia Church of God, the restored church or the living church or the whatever you want to name, united or whatever name we might want to put on any particular group, and I'm not picking on anybody here in particular, I'm just saying, everybody seems to have tried to pick a name that made that set them apart as righteous, or good, or better, or the best, or the only one, or whatever. And what that tells me is that we all essentially have been missing the point. We need to all be saying, I am the vile church of God, like Jeremiah said of himself. I am the destroyed, the splintered, the scattered. I am the spewed church of God. Has anyone picked up that title? I think that's still available. The spewed out church of God. Why does anybody use that? Because of self-righteousness. We don't recognize our spiritual state. So we're not going to name ourselves that. We might call another one that, you know. And please, I'm not trying to fight with or put down any group. I would just, some names that came to mind of some of the bigger ones, that they're all in favor, see. They're, they're good names. They're, they're names that make you look good, feel good. And yet we read the scriptures, and God doesn't want us to look good and feel good right now. He wants us in sackcloth and ashes and repentance. He wants us becoming truly righteous as opposed to self-righteous. To understand our spiritual poverty and get on down knees and wear them out trying to get close to God so the problem can be relieved. Not just dress up and act righteous and think, well, we're okay, holier than thou, but it's okay. We're all right. I'm okay, you're okay, but they're a dink. Not true. Maybe we need to change our name. I was at least somewhat aware of these things, or very aware of them actually, when I chose a congregation, just a group of God's people. 
I didn't want to put anything fancy on it because I understood this. doesn't mean I don't have my own self-righteousness and you don't have yours as a part of this little congregation. Yes, we do. That's why we don't get along with each other as well as we should. But whether we're named it or not, let's at least understand it so we can fix it. The Eternal was an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel, swallowed up all our palaces, destroyed his strongholds, and increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. This is a pretty nasty book. Verse 6, he has violently taken away his tabernacle. We were already down there. He has destroyed the places of the assembly. How many halls did we used to rent around the world? Our own? Hundreds and hundreds. They're gone. And Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. And is despised in the indignation of his anger, the king and the priest. The leaders are not being guided and helped and directed by God in the way that perhaps they were before. Verse 7, the Eternal has cast off his altar. He has abhorred his sanctuary. There again, Revelation 11. Measure the altar and the people that worship there. That's where the problem lies, is within the sanctuary of God. He has given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They took it away. They sold the buildings. They wrecked it. But it was because God caused it to happen. He may have used human emissaries, but he was behind it. Oh, what has happened? Blame that Joe DeCotch. Wasn't Joe DeCotch's fault? Maybe the devil planted him, Stan Rader and some others. But God is the one that was upset. He's the one that did the stealing. I hope we understand that. I know we do. How many times have we been over it? But how much do we understand it and take it personally? That's what counts. You can blame Tkach and Raider and be mad at them all you want. But God scattered you and me. That's what we have to understand. That's what's hard to get. And if we got it, we would be more, more motivated to change everything in our lives that need changing and respect the temple of the Spirit, which is our body and our mind and the congregation. We cannot pollute them in any way. That is not the way God works. We did pollute our bodies. We polluted our minds. We polluted his sanctuary. And he has spewed us out. <clears throat> and he's making that very clear here. Uh, verse 8, the Eternal has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He doesn't protect us anymore. There's no protective defense, no wall around us. He used to, but he doesn't anymore. He's letting us be torn apart by whatever enemy comes along. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Skipping on down verse 9, her gates are sunk into the ground. If you don't have gates, if you don't have protection to shut the gates against the enemy, they come right on in and destroy you. And God says he's the one that did that. 
He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. Herbert Armstrong, our king and counselor, Micah IV, died. And the ones that took over are out among the Gentiles. The law is no more. They did away with the law, went right back into Protestantism. Her prophets also find no vision from the eternal. Those who would tell you what's going on and what's about to happen, don't know. I can show you in Isaiah where it says, none of them know. None of them know what to do. And he said, I'll send one to tell you. And then he would send others later. But that's all. No one else. Where else are you going to hear this message? All through the church now, if they go through Lamentations, it's all about physical Israel and how they're about to be destroyed. That's all they understand. You might find one here and there, an individual, that grasps this concept, brethren, but you won't find it very much. It's just not out there. <clears throat> Verse 10, The elders of the daughter of Zion all sit on the ground and keep silence. They don't know what to say. Oh, they still talk, but they don't know what to say. They don't say anything. They cast dust on their heads. You think that these ministerial conferences, they don't fret themselves and try to talk about how we're going to get this thing going. We need to preach the gospel around the world. They don't even know they're not supposed to be. So they sit and maunder and dip salt out of their navels or whatever they do. I don't know, but they don't get anything done. Talked about how his Eyes fail with tears. Verse 12, they say to their mothers, where is corn and wine? Where, where do we find the spiritual understanding and spiritual food to help us understand what's going on? Uh, verse 13, what things shall I take to witness for you? What, what can I say for you, church? What can I say for you? What things shall I liken you to, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal you to, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Can I, can I tell you how righteous you are? Can I tell you how wonderful you are? Can I tell you how committed you are, and how prayerful, and how faithful you are in study and service to me and to my people? Can I, can I tell you that you're just wonderful? What happens when you tell the kid when he's little, you are so wonderful. You're the most wonderful kid that's ever walked the earth. That's our culture today. You are special. You're my child. You are just so good. And then we go out in the world and the world says, where'd you come from? You're not worth anything. Ooh, well, my mommy said I was. Well, we can kid ourselves all we want. But the cold, hard facts are written here for us. <clears throat> for thy breach is great like the sea. Who can heal you? How wide is the sea? God says that is the breach between his church and him today. Isaiah 58 tells who will heal the breaches. Those who repent in sackcloth and ashes and deal their bread to the poor and help and serve and give will be the ones he calls to heal the breaches. 
Those who fast with an attitude of spiritual poverty, not what can I get from God. Verse 14, the prophets have seen vain and foolish things for you. We're going to just spread and spread, and we're going to go around the world, and this group, whichever one it is, is going to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and everything will be done. Ain't going to happen. Scripture says no. You're whistling in the wind. They have not discovered your iniquity. What do you hear when you go to most of the churches of God today? Do you hear them talking about your sins and your iniquity primarily? Or are they talking about how we're going to be upward and onward and preach the gospel around the world and we've got so many booklets and so many broadcasts and blah, 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 sickening? They have not discovered your iniquity to turn away your captivity, but have seen for you false burdens and causes of banishment. Going on thinking they're preaching the gospel around the world in the mode of Herbert Armstrong, redoing his work, rebuilding Worldwide Church of God. God doesn't want Worldwide Church of God rebuilt. They don't get it. He's going to start over, as we're going to see soon. He's going to build it differently. <clears throat> That's why I entitled this, How Would God Build a Temple? We need to see the error of our ways so that we can, if we are chosen to help, build it right this time so God doesn't have to blow it away. He wants it done His way. And people are trying to recreate the past, and that's what God blew up. You've got to start over. You've got to do something different. Trying to redo what has been done is futile. It won't work. All that pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? It said up here they put false burdens and causes of banishment on you. They implore you to give more tithes, more offerings, more this, more that, so that we can get a gospel preached. You don't hear that here. How often do I ask you for more offerings. I preach the doctrine of tithing sometimes because it's in there. It's part of the Word. But you've never heard me to ask you to dig deep and let's get this done, let's get that done. I'm doing all I can to keep the financial burden off of us, to make it where we can live very frugally without having big rent or big payments or big this or big that, trying to keep it as low as I possibly can and still fulfill our needs. And we don't talk about money. Most do, though. They put false burdens, doing a false focus and a false work, 
that God destroyed and doesn't want done now. He's already designated who's going to do it and when they're going to do it. Thank you. But people don't see that. Verse 17, the Eternal has done that which he had devised. He's the one that decided to do this. Uh, He's fulfilled his word that he commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. And he has caused your enemy to rejoice over you and set up the horn of your adversaries. Their heart cried to the Eternal, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Let not the apple of your eye cease. God should be the apple of our eye. And we need to be crying out and going to Him and imploring Him to turn this thing around and to begin to bless us and forgive us again. And He says He will once we do that in a sufficiency that He approves. A little nighty-night prayer now and then doesn't get the job done. Let your tears run down. Arise, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Eternal. Now, he's been telling us all along what he's done here and why he's done it. Now we're beginning to get the answer. Here's what to do. Lift up your hands toward him for the life of your young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street in the spiritual famine that we're in. Behold, O Eternal, and consider to whom you have done this. Shall the women eat their fruit and the children of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Eternal? Think about it. This is on God. He did it to us because of our sins. And then it goes on in chapter 3, talking about how God has turned and how Jeremiah was feeling old and miserable and frustrated and and all those things that he was. And we've covered a little of that. I want to move on. Verse 8, also when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. Not only do I have this affliction and that affliction, but even when I do pray, God shuts out my prayer. He's not listening. He wants to hear... Our tears. He wants to hear us crying out. He wants to hear us seeking Him with our whole heart. Then He will begin to listen. But when we're still praying selfish prayers and self-righteous prayers, He doesn't want to hear that. He shuts it out. He has enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He's like a bear lying in wait, and so on. Pull me in pieces, verse 11. Verse 18, and I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the eternal. Do we feel that way sometimes, that our prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling? We don't have that closeness that we need to have with God? He's withdrawn. He's turned his face away. Verse 19, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Ah, I'm beginning to realize my spiritual poverty. I'm beginning to be humbled and made meek by all that we have been through. This is the required response. Verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. He says, remember the affliction 
the trouble that we have been going through and start humbling yourself and have hope in the change in attitude because it is the change in attitude that is going to get God's attention and cause him to turn his face back. It is of the eternal's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Even though he has been angry for a moment here, and it seems like a long one to you and me. <coughs> and we can go through life doing our thing and forget about it, perhaps, to some degree. But we're in a mess. The whole church is in a mess. Don't deny that. Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Do something about it. And you and I are the only ones that can do anything about it. You can't do it for somebody else. But remember, his mercy, his compassion, is why we aren't completely gone. Just scattered, just splintered, many dying spiritually, but we're still here. Verse 23, his compassions fail not, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. The eternal is my portion, says my soul, therefore will I hope in him. Turning to God is the key to this whole thing. The eternal is good to them that wait for him, to those to the soul that seeks him. He is the center of the universe again. Seek him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. Hope, quietly wait, don't get frustrated because this is going on so long. Quietly wait and make the changes we need to make to get in his good graces again. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. If we make life too easy for our children, give them everything they want. Don't make them work. Don't make them do chores. Give them an easy life. They don't mature. They don't grow up. They're not prepared to go out as an adult. And therefore, they don't do very well. And if we did not grow spiritually as little children in God's church, we were not ready to face the true job that is ahead and have the commitment and the ability to see it through. Let's move on down. Uh, verse 33 of chapter 3. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. God doesn't like to punish us. He doesn't like to do what he has done to us, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High. Verse 36, to subvert a man in his cause, the eternal approves not. He doesn't want to subvert us. He doesn't want to undermine us. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to chasten us because he chastens every son whom he loves, Hebrews 12. And he loves us is the reason we're in the mess we're in today. He loves us enough to make life so miserable that we finally turn to him. That's what he's doing. He's paddling our behinds, brethren, until we change our attitudes. So many parents make the mistake of, well, okay, then, if you 
won't do it after the 30th time I've told you, I'll tan your hide. And then you give them about three little licks or four and just make the kid scream and get more rebellious. No. You haven't done the job until you hear that cry change. When you hear repentance, when you hear remorse, when you see a whole change of attitude is when you stop pounding their behind or sitting them in the corner or removing privileges or whatever. It isn't when you tell them to clean their room and they go slam the door and pout. You haven't done your job. You've done your job when they become loving and compliant and go clean their room with the door open and don't have a bad attitude about it. Okay? God is not going to quit paddling us until we change our attitude and become loving and sweet and compliant and obedient and truly righteous. Then he'll stop this. But he's not doing it to kill us or subvert us. He loves us. Verse 39, Wherefore does a loving man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? What have we got to complain about? God's doing this because of the attitudes we have had. Thinking we were great and wonderful and spiritual and had no need of nothing. Not realizing we're naked and wretched and miserable and blind. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the eternal. That's the desired response, brethren. If we want this burden lifted and the paddling to stop, We have to search and try our ways and find out what we really are as opposed to what we'd like to think we are. And quit worrying about what somebody else is and what we think they are and start getting into our heads that we need to change what we are. Turn to the eternal. Let us lift up our heart with our hands to God in the heavens. It's an upward thing where you... Take your hands and lift up your heart to God. We have transgressed and have rebelled. You have not pardoned. Verse 44, you have covered yourself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. That's the condition. Communication has broken down between the church and God. Broken down. The breach is as the sea, as we read earlier. He doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. We wonder why we don't get through and we don't get the answers we think we need. Our heart isn't right. We're not doing it the way He wants it done. And until we do, our prayers will not go through. But when we get there, when we seek Him with our whole heart, we will find Him and He will answer us. This needs to happen soon, because the world is about to come apart and it's going to be too late, brethren. He is going to call out a people, as we shall soon see, to rebuild his temple. And it's got to be done right, in the right way, with the right materials, for him to accept it. And there isn't much time left to get ourselves ready to be involved in that. If we don't, we will be rejected and left out of the program. Verse 49, My eye trickles down and ceases not without any intermission. Till the eternal look down and behold from heaven. 
He says, just keep crying, keep crying out, keep seeking, keep searching to find the true God of all the universe, and then you will get somewhere. You drew near in the day that I called upon you. You said, fear not. Verse chapter 4. Let's quickly cover this. Well, we've got 4 and 5. I still want to get through this and move on next week. How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out on the top of every street. God builds with gold and with silver. And he says, but it's polluted. It's dim. It doesn't shine like 24 carat. Something happened to it. It got full of dross, full of other materials. The stones, the people of the church have been poured out. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold, how are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? Are we just earthen pitchers? Are we vessels of gold? God wants vessels of gold, brethren. He doesn't want us polluted. He doesn't want us to be 14 carat. He wants us to be 24. He doesn't want clay pots to build a temple out of. We're going to see that. He builds with fine things. And he is frustrated that we're as polluted as we are. Um... Verse 7, her Nazarites were purer than snow and they were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. He started us out on the right path and was trying to build us into proper building stones and materials. And we didn't take to it. We didn't reach the standard that he must have. Therefore, he has thrown us into the fire to refine us spiritually. We've got to take the heat, and we've got to be refined and become proper materials. That's the bottom line. Uh, let's go on down. He's kindled a fire in Zion, partway through verse 11. Verse 13, For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her, the ministers didn't lead where we were supposed to lead. We didn't set the standard high enough for ourselves or for the people. And look what's happened. Verse 16, the anger, anger of the eternal has divided them. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favored not the elders. So the elders and the priests, the ministers, had their own problems. But then the people began to despise them too. And God does not allow for that as well. There is an office there that needs to be respected, even though somebody might not always be as respectable as they should be. As for us, our eyes as yet failed for our vain help. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save us. Nobody to help us. Then he talks about, verse 22, The punish punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry you away into captivity. He will visit your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover your sins. Spiritual Edomites took us back to Babylon, to Koch, Raider, and others. And now we have physical Israel of Edomites, the bankster world, that is taking the nation away and is going to rejoice over the demise of the United States of America very soon now. Read the book of Obadiah. It's about the 
conflict between Esau and Jacob, and he says in the end time, Edom or Esau will prevail. So those Jewish so-called Edomites, false people who say they're Jews and are not, are going to triumph over the nation just as those who crept into the church did. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verse 3, we are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. Uh, we have given the hand, verse 6, to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. We're willing to kowtow and bow to the governments of this world in order to have bread. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. We can't see. The church can't see where it's going. We can't see why this is happening. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. The church is being walked upon like a dead thing that the foxes can chew on, gnaw on, take down, and chew up. And Christ called Herod, who was happy, to mite a fox. So there's, there's that analogy there as well. Verse 19, You, O Eternal, remain forever, your throne from generation to generation. Let's focus, brethren. God's there forevermore. He built the universe. He's the only one that's going to survive this except those who will serve Him. He is the center of the universe. You are not the center of your own universe. Without God, you're dead. Without God, you will not live eternally. We revolve around Him, and we haven't revolved very well. So we need to change that. We need to take care of body and mind. Wherefore do you forget us forever and forsake us so long time? It seems forever. Turn you us to you, O Eternal. There's a prayer we need to pray. We perhaps cannot, are not capable of turning to God without His help. Now there's our prayer. Help me repent. Help me see myself as you see me. So I can fix it. Turn me to you, O God. It's something we have trouble doing on our own. Preacher can talk about it, read the Scriptures, turn to God with your whole heart. But here's something is added to that dimension. Please, you, help us turn to you. Turn us to you. And we shall be turned. We've tried, we've tried, we've worked at it, we can't get there. Turn us, O God. Renew our days as of old, but you have utterly rejected us. You are very angry against us. It even ends with a lament. So our work is cut out for us. Turn to God, ask Him to turn us, and when that is accomplished and we are again compliant, loving, kind, gentle, ready to serve Him and His people, He will turn His face to us and bless us. And if He hasn't, that means we haven't done it yet. It means to one degree or another we are still miserable and naked and blind and self-righteous and don't recognize our own spiritual poverty so that we go 
and seek treasures in heaven and build up a true wealth. It will only get worse and he will only paddle harder until we respond and change our attitudes. Then it will get better. 